Welcome to The Backpack, a podcast from Christ Community Church in Shelbyville, Kentucky. On The Backpack, we want to prepare you for the journey outside where following Jesus meets real life. Hey, welcome to The Backpack. My name is DJ. I'm one of your hosts, and thanks for joining me back at The Canteen, one of our regular segments where we feature sermons from the preaching ministry here at Christ Community Church. This week at the canteen, we've got something special for you, as we had the opportunity on Sunday to hear from missionaries Nick and Ruth Ripken. Nick and Ruth have served for over three decades as missionaries around the world, uh, spending a great deal of time among believers who are experiencing deep persecution for their faith. So they sat down with us on Sunday morning to talk about some of the stories that they have seen and experienced over the years uh, and encourage us to think deeply about our worship and the way that we have the privilege to worship here in our culture. So let's listen in to Nick and Ruth as we get to hear their story. Sanity of God. Next week, we're going to show that movie, but today uh, we have a uh, special treat. <laughs> it's not really a treat. It's just getting to enjoy together and what the Lord is doing. And uh, Nick and Ruth Ripkin are here. They're going to make their way up. Uh, and they uh, have recently, uh, the Lord has brought them here in this season of life. And um, we, get to, we get to be um, with them as we journey together in Christ, as they, as they make their way, I'm going to tell one story, and then I'll get out of their way and let them tell a lot of other stories, but uh, as I've gotten to know them, uh, it's just, it's been a joy, uh, and uh, I had spent some time in their home, and we kept trying to figure out how we're going to get our families to get, you know, well, we come out, eat dinner, and so we, we scheduled a Friday night dinner, and after we scheduled that dinner, uh, we found out that our, our kids' is, um, uh, back-to-school swim party for school was that night. And so pastor's kids, poor poor kids, were they come home from school, and they're excited about going to this pool party. And we're like, guys, sorry, you know, dad's, dad's the pastor. You, know, you got to go to somebody else's house, you know. And um, we weren't really apologizing in that way. We, we knew that it would be a, a good time and, and a good experience for our kids. But you're also, as a parent, thinking, how are our kids going to handle a dinner situation in a home where, you know, uh, y'all don't have young kids. And so we're, we're thinking through all these things as we go out. And uh, we went and we had dinner and to watch our children, 10, 8, and 4, uh, soak up stories and um, play and uh, be welcomed uh, was incredible. By the end of the night, our two oldest were asking if they could spend the night. And Magnolia looked at Caitlin and said, Mom, could you just bring me back tomorrow and weave? Uh, and, uh, you know, um, when your kids have that kind of experience, uh, you drive away asking, why did that happen? What, what was going on there? And as Caitlin and I drove home that night, we could only come to one conclusion, that these people were walking uh, with the Spirit in such a way that the Holy Spirit was drawing our kids to them, through them. And um, when you run into people like that, you want to spend more time with them, and you want to hear how the Lord has uh, changed them and used them. And so you all get that opportunity and that privilege to hear a little bit from Nick and Ruth Ripkin today. So let me pray for you guys, and then I'll get out of the way and let you do your thing. So uh, um, thank you so much for being willing to come and share and to lead our church in this way. God, thank you for today, and thank you for your word and for your word that changes our lives. Um, I'm so thankful for... Um, how you changed Nick and Ruth's life 
and uh, the story that you've written in their lives. And I'm thankful that you've given them the strength and endurance and courage to use their story to encourage and change people's lives forever. Lord, as we um, hear from them and from your word, I pray, God, that you would uh, that you would change things in people's lives forever, uh, that you would prick people's heart for the nations, uh, that you would cause light to shine brighter in our lives, and that you would burden us uh, with the, the lostness and darkness that surrounds us. Help us to be light, even when it doesn't make sense. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And I'll just add that any of your children who want to come and live with us, they are welcome. Um, that has been our joy over the years in over, over 700 countries to fall in love with children and see how God works in families and how God um, blesses us through your children. So I hope you'll pop in and let us meet your children too. Um, it is a joy for us to be with you and to spend time um, just sharing our heart. You see, today, in a little village in the middle of Africa, a group of followers of Jesus, just like you, got together. And they sang their hearts out, just like we just did. And you see, there was a group of believers that met under a tree today. And they only were a few, but they prayed and they worshiped God. And then there's those two believers that we've been praying desperately for over the past few weeks who have been arrested and are in prison and being beaten. And just like Paul and Silas, they are sitting in the prison worshiping God and living off of our prayers. And we are also bringing you greetings today from churches who are bigger than us, who are in cathedrals, who are in places of worship in churches, but they live in countries where it is illegal for them to repair their church or remodel their building like we have just done here. You see, all of these people wanted us to greet you and say, we are delighted we are part of the body of Christ. Now you see, some of them can't come and worship with you but what we did this morning affects what they do. Our brothers and sisters who follow Jesus, just as the film intro said, live in places of persecution where it cost them a lot. It could cost them everything to follow Jesus. And all of these believers are gathering in places that they can in some of the places, they can't even make a sound for fear that someone will hear through the walls uh, that they are worshiping God. There, this is a reality that growing up in Kentucky, just a few miles from right here, I had heard about persecution. I had heard that there were people in the Bible who had been persecuted. But the reality that today Right now, your brothers and sisters are living in places of persecution just was foreign to me until Nick and I, a few years ago, got to go and sit in homes of your brothers and sisters and hear their stories. We got to ride quietly in vehicles as they worshiped 
and shared their stories with us. We got to sit in villages and in coffee shops and walking down the streets in places that we'll tell you a little bit about today. And we got to hear their stories, their amazing stories, and realize that we are all part of the body of Christ. That there is no such thing as a church in freedom and a church in persecution. There's just the church. And she can be persecuted and victorious at all times. One believer shared it this way that I hope will be, make it clear as he did for me. He said, Ruth, it's like your body. There are parts of your body that you see every day. Parts of your body, your eyes, your hands, your mouth, your, your eyes and ears. But there are parts of your body that you will never see. Your kidney, your lungs, your heart, all those inner parts that function. And he said, that's who we are as the body of Christ in persecution. We're the part of the body that you'll never see. But we're as vital to you as you are to us. For 35 years, Nick and I have lived in places for a while where it was very fruitful, where we could drive down the road and see people come to Christ because they were waiting for us to come. We lived in places for about seven years where it was a traditional. It was very rigid. It had lots of racism. We lived there for seven years. And then we moved to places like Somalia where if you are a follower of Jesus, it can cost you everything. And how do you make Christ known when any time someone comes to Christ, their life could be taken? Persecution is a lot of pain. And those of us who live in places where we don't experience overt persecution, we must realize that when our thumb gets hit by a hammer, it hurts. And for us who live in places like right here, we must know that when that young lady who gave her life to Christ in a North African country just a few weeks ago, and her parents found out about it, and they locked her in the garage of their house, we must feel that pain. We must feel that pain of those two believers that right now are being tortured for their faith and people are trying to find out who the other believers are. And the only way they can get food is for people who are followers to sneak food to them. We must feel that hunger. We must feel that. But the other way is also true. When DJ stood up here with his musicians this morning and we worshiped, you were worshiping for those believers. When DJ said, let us pray to a holy God, those believers said they were being victorious because you were victorious. When our worship comes every morning as we come to Christ's community, do we think about our brothers and sisters who would give everything they had to worship with us? That's what we want to do. I hope that as Nick and I are part of your family, and we are so grateful, for 35 years we never got to worship in a place like this. And now you are our vital lifeblood 
because you are part of our family and we are part of Christ's family. I would love to introduce you to Huma and to Dimitri and to Constantine and so many others who we can't call their names because it would be cause them extra persecution. But over these next weeks, as we worship together and live together in our Christ community together, I pray you will realize how vital you are to your brothers and sisters who live today in places of persecution. Paul says it best in 1 Corinthians 12, and I'm going to read just two verses. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. married up quite a bit. Um, I like to say that Ruth and I are both PKs. She's a pastor's kid and I'm a pagan's kid. And pastor and I, we've got a lot in common. He was a star football player and they let me put on a uniform. Matter of fact, by the time I put on shoulder pads, helmet, thigh pads, and whatever other pads he allow you to wear, it doubled my weight. And uh, this morning, I want to continue uh, from Matthew 10 and Matthew 11, if you'll follow along with me. I think it might be up on the board here in a moment. But I, I want to do two things for you as quickly as I can. I want to do two things. I want to continue what Ruth has done and open a window for you on how God is working in the world, especially among Muslims, especially among Hindus, low-caste Hindus, and especially among those in East Asia, um, which I think that you know which uh, one of the largest peoples on earth uh, are from. But for a little bit of security, I need to be a little bit careful this morning. But I want to frame this by saying something uh, that we can't say in most places that Ruth and I have ministered, especially the last 25 years of our time overseas. You see, what, what Blake and others get to say here, Sunday after Sunday, day after day, conversation after conversation, uh, usually don't word it this way, but you can say, the altar of God is open Come into the presence of the Lord and find strength for your faith. Or if you are not a person of faith, even today, even today, what we are doing is opening a place of worship, of faith, of, of faith invitation, and saying that there will be people standing here today that you can go and talk with, you can go and pray with, you can actually find forgiveness for all the wrongs that you've done, all the listlessness that you've felt, all the relationships that you have broken. You can find that turned inside out this morning. What I can say, 
to you is that the altar of God is open. But the, probably the, the harder truth is that Ruth and I can't say that for 70% of the world's people because it'd be a lie. It would absolutely be a lie. lie. For about 50%, so it's a little bit over 40-some percent of the world's people, uh, they have not a single verse of the Bible. They do not have a single Christian spiritual song. There's never been a, a, a person like you, a Christian, darken their doorway with a message of hope. Uh, we know of no baptisms in their country, and we know absolutely that there is not a single body of Christ for three billion people. And that doesn't include the people that have some access, maybe one or two or three percent, but most of them not enough to put together all that they need uh, to know who Jesus is. So I want, I, I want you uh, to remember this one-point message, really, that the altar of God is open for you, and that is a luxury that is an opportunity, that is a gift. And I don't know why it's so unfair that we've been given an opportunity while the majority, or, or at least half of the world's people, cannot say that. Cannot say that. You see, in Matthew 10, Jesus has this figured out. If you want to look at it with me, uh, I'm going to start around verse 16. I'm going to paraphrase it as if you don't have a Bible, uh, no access to it, or uh, 63% of the people who have no access to the kingdom of God cannot read or write a word. The way that you do worship Sunday after Sunday by putting the songs up, by putting the scriptures up, by looking at notes, by being literally interactive with the kingdom of God would not work for 63% of the people. And we can no longer afford to take upwards to 20 years to go to a new place, learn their language, make a dictionary, write a Bible from that dictionary, teach people to read and write, and then allow them to read the Bible and it's not until they become literate we give them access to the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't do it that way, and we need to stop. Or we need to add the way that he did it in the marketplace to the way that we do it when we gather at a church. The altar of God is open. And in, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, what Jesus is saying uh, to his followers, it's not working. It's not working, folks. I hope, I hope you make the connection. Jesus said, Israel for generations, for perhaps a thousand plus years, has considered itself the people of God based upon its military, based upon its economic strength, based upon its temple that that has millions of dollars invested in its structure and double that in jewels and gold and silver down in its 
uh, basement in his treasure chest. They thought they were the people of God based on the power of military, power, authority of government, uh, uh, because uh, their faith was defined by a piece of land, a piece of property. And Jesus said to his disciples, it's not working. We've tried it. And what we've done for the last thousand years, we've increasingly taken this faith of Abraham and we've squeezed it and we've squeezed it and we've squeezed it to now the presence of God is in an altar in the Holy of Holies. It's behind a curtain and only one man certain times of the year can access the altar of God and everybody else has to go through that one man, through that one temple, through that one Jewish faith, and Jesus says it's not working. It's not working. We've been known by the power of our sword, by the stones in our slings. We've been known by our, our Davids defeating Goliath. We've been known by our Samsons. And now I'm going to change. I'm going to turn upside down the way the kingdom of God is going to operate. And Jesus says to his disciples, Today I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. My goodness, what a dumb statement. It is a proven fact. The longer, the longer that we are in Christianity, the more we think that passages like this in the Bible make sense. Are you ready to say to your military, we want you to put down your, your, your weapons, we, we want to put down your armory, we want to take off your, your, your body armor, and, and, and the way we're going to interact with Iran, the way we're going to fight in Ukraine, the way that we're going to resist the evil in this world is that we're going to be sheep and we're going to go among the wolves. You know that militarily, you know that economically, you know as far as the way of doing government, you could never get a buy-in. But Jesus is saying to his people, I'm going to change the way this is acting. I am sending you as sheep among wolves. Went to Baptist college, went to Baptist seminary uh, for a master and a doctorate just miles from here, uh, 30 some miles one direction and 30 some miles the other direction. And I promise you, except for one class, 100% of those classes invested in me how to be a sheep among the sheep, not how to be sheep among wolves. It, it, it invested in me how to do something like this rather than cross the street and cross the ocean where the wolves are in the majority. And yet Jesus said, the altar of God has become so limited, I'm going to send you out, and wherever I send my people, and wherever they open their hearts and their voices, there the altar of God becomes available to those who are outside the kingdom of God. And every place that you say uh, a healing, healthy, saving word for the kingdom of God based upon his word, 
you have created an altar of God in that place. And Jesus said, you know, if you don't think that's silly enough, later on in these verses on down, a little bit later around chapter 19, Jesus said, I'm going to even let them arrest you. I'm going to let them lock you away. And they're going to do bad things to you. They're going to beat you. They're going to put you in prison. Uh, they're going to even take your lives. And he said, I am going to allow you because, because here's the deal. You can't just pick up your phone and call Herod or call Caesar and say, I'd like to have an appointment and maybe we could go out and get some coffee or tea together. You, you can't access the Roman military. You, you cannot even go to your religious leaders, to those priests at the highest level, and say to them, I would like to have a counseling center uh, session. I, I would like uh, you to sit with me. I, I would like you to come and have a meal in my home or, or me and yours. They were unaccessible. And Jesus is saying, what I'm going to do, I'm going to make altars all over Israel and beyond by sending you out as sheep among wolves, and I'm going to allow you to be arrested, tortured, beaten, because you can't get access to the highest places of government, of military, of religion, but by your arrest, you're going to allow the kingdom of God to access people that have no access to the kingdom of God. I bet if you were honest, you would hope that all this is in past tense, wouldn't you? But it is as real and true and in present active tense now, today, as it was when Jesus spoke these words. Two things I'm doing really well, I don't ever speak quickly. Uh, we've got some of our neighbors here uh, today that brings us a lot of joy, but they'll also know when they sit in our house or we're with them, when I get to talking, I don't usually stop talking very quickly. But here we've got in, in, in Scripture, uh, we, we've got some clear evidence in, in chapter 11 of what Jesus meant because what Jesus allows in chapter 11 he allows his best friend John the Baptist to be arrested you think if Jesus is saying something as outlandish as life-changing as he does in chapter 10 he'd give his people some time to get adjusted to it but he doesn't John the Baptist gets arrested listen to me my friends you're from a country especially if you're white especially if you're Caucasian in this country, you'll, you will generally believe that people who are in jails and prisons deserve to be there, that they have done something wrong, that they have been caught, tried, and arrested, and they deserve to be incarcerated. In the Bible, from beginning to the end, and in the places where Ruth and I have worked for most of our 35 years overseas. Listen to me carefully. You are as likely to be arrested for being good or as you are to be arrested for being bad. John the Baptist was arrested because he was good. Because he looked Herod in the eye and said, no, you won't do this. 
You won't take your brother's wife and make her as your own. You, you might think you're a God in your own eyes, but in God's eyes, you're under condemnation. And he's put in prison, and he's being mistreated because he is a godly person. And he is about to lose his life. If you know the story of John the Baptist, you know that soon these women are going to uh, 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 connive with, with Herod himself, and John is going to lose his head. And I did not understand this as a brand new Christian at Georgetown College when I read what John said in, in Matthew chapter 11. He sends his disciples to see Jesus, and he wants to know one thing. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one who has come, or do we wait for someone else? And as a young Christian of two months, I thought, wow, John just flunked Christianity. John is supposed to be this strong, prophetic man, but now when his shoulders are to be square and his chest should be puffed out and his, 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 his inner armor should be showing, John wants to know if Jesus is the Messiah. Well, John prepared the way for Jesus. John talked about Jesus. He said, I'm not worthy to unlatch his laces of his sandals. John, when he saw Jesus coming, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. When John baptized Jesus, he heard the voice of God saying, This is my Son, whom I'm well pleased, whom I love. If there's anybody other than Mary on the planet at that time that should have known who Jesus was, it was John. And John let me down personally. John is wanting to know that if his life is going to be taken from him, no. If John is going to give his life for Jesus, he wants to be sure that it's for the Messiah and not for something less. And, and if John's question confused me as a brand new Christian, matter of fact, it just let me down, Jesus' reply was very, very strange. If somebody asks you at lunch today, if you go to a restaurant, or as you go to school, or whatever, and they recognize that you're a person that is of the Christian faith, and they ask you, uh, prove to me, or, or explain to me, uh, how can Jesus be the Messiah? What would you say? How would you explain that? Well, Jesus doesn't do it. Jesus said, you go back to John, not with words, but with deeds. You go back to John and tell John what you see, uh, what you hear, what you taste, and what you touch. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus says these strange words. Go back. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poorest of the poor. And he says to John, basically, I can send my angels. I can speak a word. And I can get you out 
of that prison in a second. But John, you know your purpose was to prepare the way for the Lord. You've done that. You've done that well. Now I'm going to let you come home. When did it become a tragedy for those who follow Jesus to get to go to heaven early? I suggest to you it isn't a tragedy for those who get to go, but it certainly is hard for those of us who have to stay. And Jesus said, here's not what you say about me as Messiah. This is what you do with the Messiah in the marketplace. It's not what we do on Sunday morning that is an issue. It's what we're failing to do Monday through Friday in seeing the kingdom of God, an altar being opened among those who are outside that kingdom on a daily basis through the blind receiving sight, the lame walking, lepers cleanse, deaf hear, dead raise, good news proclaim. When we met this young lady, she was almost 30 years of age. She's the only one of her nature that we have met. She's in one of the toughest Muslim environments on this planet. Ruth and I never met anybody else that figured out who Jesus was by themselves. She's the only one. And she had a dream. 93% of all Muslims who come to Jesus, listen carefully, and who are literate, ladies, because in rural Somalia, rural Afghanistan, rural Pakistan, rural Yemen this morning, 90% of the women marry at 12, 13, 14 years of age. 90% of them cannot read or write a word. How do they access the kingdom of God? They will not access it through literate means. They access it when women care enough to come to them, learn their language, learn their culture, and tell them stories from the word of God in response to their questions. And they are so hungry to hear. The only places on this planet where Muslims are not coming to Christ by, listen carefully, tens of thousands are the places we fail to go. Wow. Wow. She had a dream. She dreamed. Now, this is something. I'm not going to tell you what it means until you let me come back and speak again. But every time Muslims who are literate dream of the Bible, the Bible has a blue cover on it. Now why? The Quran has a green cover. When missionaries translate the Bible in Muslim languages, we used to, and some still do it, put a green cover on it. But Muslims are so furious because they think by putting a green cover on the Bible, we're trying to get Muslims to pick it up thinking it's the Quran. And so we put a black cover on it. But Ruth and I have sat with over 300 Muslims who have come to Christ. And when they are literate and when they dream of the Bible, it's a blue book. And we've tried for 15 years to find out why is the Bible a blue book. 
And we, for 15 years, cannot find out the answer until about a year ago, we found out why God put a blue cover on the Bible for Muslims. And I'll tell you why next time you have me back. I'm not going to do it today. And, you know, she didn't know anything uh, uh, wrong about it. So at breakfast the next morning, Muslims, see, the thing is, every culture has a way they interact with the supernatural. The way the Muslims interact with the supernatural, we have never met a Muslim man or woman that hasn't had dreams and visions. They talk about it at breakfast, at meals, at coffee shops. But what is miraculous is that the Holy Spirit breaks in to those dreams and visions and changes the storyline, changes the content. Rather than some random event, she dreams of this blue book. She tells her family at breakfast, I dreamed of this blue book last night. I was told it was a Bible. I was told, the voice told me, if I find this book and read it, uh, I will find the answers to my life's problems. And her family said, well, we don't know what that's about. You'll just have to dream some more. Two weeks later, her father, who's high up in the mosque, and very wealthy businessman, called him in a, her in his office, locked the door behind her, pulled a burlap, covered something out of his desk, unwrapped it, and there was the blue book, the Bible. And he said, I've had this for two years. I've wanted to read it so I can debate Christians if I ever met one because I know what's in their book. But because of your dream, I'm going to let you have this to read. And as she reached to take it, he wouldn't let go of it. And he said to her, uh, my daughter, this is a dangerous book. It can get you harmed, even killed. And I want you to be very careful with it. But she wasn't. Muslims who find the Bible miraculously, they will read it three to five times from Genesis to Revelation before they say that yes to Jesus. On the third time of reading, she said yes to Jesus. I don't remember how she found believer's baptism, but the time, by the time we caught up with her, uh, nowhere else in the world had we seen this. She had led almost 30 Muslim women to Christ. They had been baptized, been gathered into small groups, and the Taliban were out to kill her for three reasons. One, she was working for United Nations in the area of human and civil rights, and, and uh, uh, they were after her because, number one, she had uh, given her life to Jesus. Number two, in their words, she was converting other Muslim women to Jesus. And third, she was having Taliban men arrested, tried, thrown into jail, who were abusing Muslim women in the local refugee camps. This is one of the toughest young women I've ever met in my life. And she probably didn't weigh 100 pounds. She probably wasn't five feet, three uh, uh, feet tall. And, and, and she was talking about and telling us that United Nations was trying to resettle her in St. Louis, Missouri, because her life was at danger. And I begged her to stay. I begged her to stay. She said, but Uncle Nick, they might beat me. And we talked about those stories in the Bible. And we talked about what was happening 
to Muslims who believed in other countries and said, yeah, this is true. This could easily happen. Uncle Nick, they could put me in jail. And we talked about those Bible stories and places where people like her were in prison right now. And she said, uh, Uncle Nick, they could take my life. And, and I asked her, I said, uh, and, and she, you might find it presumptuous. She didn't. I said, what if the salvation of 13 million Muslim women depends upon you staying here, doing what you're doing, because we have not met a young believing lady like you anywhere else in Islam? And we read scripture together. We read stories together. And we read that passage where Jesus said, when persecution comes upon you, you get on an airplane and you go to St. Louis. No, Jesus said, when persecution comes upon you, you go to the next town. And you go to the next city. And you go to the next village. And Jesus never one time left the people without witness, extracted them, and sent them to a place where they could be safe, but their witness no longer would be present among the people that they'd been planted. You see, in part of this window that I want to open for you with Muslims very quickly, in 93, 94% of all Muslims who come to faith, there's three things that happen to them. They have dreams and visions that send them on a spiritual pilgrimage. I sat with a young man in Indonesia, and he said at midnight one night, <clears throat> he heard a voice without a body that said, find Jesus, find the gospel. You know what? That's pretty clear, isn't it? He said, I knew I wanted good news. But he said, what in the world is a Jesus? Is it a rock? Is it a tree, a chair? He, he said, I had no clue what a Jesus was. But that voice without a body said, get up, get out of bed, walk over the mountains to the coast, walk up, to the, up the coast, and the Holy Spirit sent him on a six-hour walk to seven o'clock in the morning from midnight to seven in the morning. He was led to an apartment, and he knocked on the door, and there an old man opened the door and said to this young Muslim man, can I help you? And the Holy Spirit of God in most of our lifetimes, led him to the door of one of only three believers out of 18 million Muslims in that people group. Now, who can do that but God? And who amongst, among us today wouldn't want to witness that, be a part of that, learn from that? Muslims have three things generally that God uses to bring them to himself. They have dreams and visions that set them on a spiritual pilgrimage. Now hear carefully. Dreams and visions don't save anyone. Only Jesus brings forgiveness of sin and salvation. But dreams and visions will get you a, your attention, and you might be going this direction, and they send you this direction. And if you are lucky to be literate, the Holy Spirit will send you on a journey to find that blue book and you'll read through it from cover to cover 
and you'll find the Jesus that you were promised in that book and come to faith. And thirdly, what happens for them to come to faith often is God will send someone to them the way that God sent Joseph to Pharaoh, Ananias to Saul, and Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch. You see, we didn't have to talk to 300 Muslims and to a total of 600 believers in persecution of how they found Jesus. We just had to read the Bible and to understand something that we have forgotten is that everything that God has ever done in the Old and New Testament, in the Bible, God is still doing. Did you hear that? Everything that God has ever done in the Bible, God is still doing. He hasn't rested. He hasn't ceased. He hasn't taken a vacation. The God that we often study in past tense is a God of present active tense. What is God doing as we look through this window of faith uh, to the world? If you go to low caste Hindus, there's uh, uh, just millions and millions of them. And ladies, there is one medical person for every two million low caste Hindus. They can't even afford an aspirin. And usually that medical person might have had two or three hours of medical training. It'll almost never be a nurse. I've never met a low-caste Hindu. Never. Never. And all the times in and out of India, I've never met a low-caste Hindu that have ever met a medical doctor. Never. And ladies, you cannot imagine what mothers do to their infant children to burn their bodies, to chase the demons out of their bodies that are causing the illness in their young children and their babies. Two million people and no medical doctors. And these young evangelists who used to be Hindus and now are followers of Jesus are going to these Hindu villages and they're saying to them, I've come with uh, new information deeper information about the God. And Hindus had hundreds of millions of little gods and six to eight major gods. And at the appropriate time in the evening, they'll gather together as an entire village and sit at the feet of these young evangelists. And they'll ask them, how many of you are sick? And all the hands will go up. How many of you want to be healed? And all the hands will go up. And in the name of Jesus, just like in Matthew 11, what does it say here? The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead raise. And at that point, the poorest of the poor are having access to the kingdom of God for the first time. Folks, if you want to see what God is doing biblically, perhaps you have to go where he's doing it. It's there for you to see. It's there for you experience. It's there for you to be the agent of that miracle. Ruth and I have been in three places in India where they're baptizing anywhere from 18 to 23,000 low caste Hindus a month. And I've gone back and I've gone back 
and I've been with low-caste Hindus who've got desperately ill again, and where they were not healed, and they still stayed with Jesus. Miracles of healing are like dreams and visions. They don't bring salvation. They get your attention for the greater story that is to come. And if I were to take you to East Asia, back before 1970, every house church that started in East Asia started with miracles of healing. And you know what I, I watched? Who are you, Blake? You know what I've watched? I've watched these pastors that, that, that preach the word of God. They, they, they change. They go from house to house to house uh, in a week's time. They never worship the same place. Uh, they move from house to house. They change the days of the weeks they worship. They change the places that they worship. They change the hours of the day that they worship because 60%, no, no, 40% of the evangelists, deacons, elders, pastors, musicians, in the house churches are in prison at any one time. And they're averaging leading 10,000 people in those uh, prisons to Christ in the three years that a group of believers are thrown into those type of environments where they are treated horribly and many times they do not come out. So they, they, they change places uh, where they meet, uh, they, when, when they get together and they, they, they want to sing and, and, uh, on that uh, northeast border of that East Asian country, a family of, of four or four believers will get together and I've been there and I've watched them and they'll sit together in a tight circle and they let their knees touch one another and when they get ready to sing, they move their mouths, but they don't let any sound come out. Because if the sound of singing, which is banned, is allowed to travel through the paper-thin walls of the apartment, or at the, out the window or the door of that one small house, there is no doubt that before the sun sets that day, Security police will be in that home. And because that family was singing to God, they will take three generations of that family to a labor camp in that country north of South Korea. And we have no record of any one of those believers ever coming out. And yet the body of Christ continues to grow. And they asked me about you. They asked me about you. And I described this. And I described this man. And I described this praise team. And I described the way that we can open the word of God and, and stay in the same place and have generations of family in the, in the house of God. And some of the stories that I had told them already, they had clapped. They had danced, they, they had shouted praises to God, and that's what I was expecting. And what I got was terrible, wrenching, heart-breaking sobs. 
this kind of sobbing where, you know, you suck air like a, a vacuum cleaner, and they're just broken. And I, I looked at them, and I said, what did I do? What, what did I say that has hurt you so bad, that has upset you? They said, you don't understand? I, I said, Ruth's not here. How can I know what I've done wrong if Ruth's not here? Right, guys? Yeah. Yeah. Don't you act like it's not true. And, and, and they said, you mean you don't understand? I said, I don't have a clue. And people that are so accepting to outsiders and would do nothing to offend them, they got hurt and they got angry and they got in my face and they said, Ripken, Ripken, which is the greatest miracle. You're saying that that Blake guy, if he wanted to, he could stand in the altar, the, the, uh, the, the, the preaching pulpit area of the body of Christ. If he wants to, he can preach the word of God on the street corner or inside the church 24-7. And you're telling us that his family won't be taken from him, that he won't be beaten, he won't be harmed, he won't be put in prison, he won't be killed. Which is the greatest miracle, Ripken. You've watched our pastors and, and evangelists go from place to place to place to place trying to stay ahead of the bad guys. And you're telling us that you can experience this Sunday after Sunday, day after day if you wanted to? He said, Ripken, you know our history spiritually. And that God heals a hundred a thousand, a hundred thousand of our people. And maybe a hundred, maybe, maybe, impossibly, a hundred can figure out that healing came from a God. And maybe three or five can figure out somehow that his name was Jesus and find salvation. And you're telling us every time you need a, a knee surgery or a shoulder surgery or a back surgery, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you can go to a doctor, you can go to a specialist, you can call them. And in the old days when we would come in, I would go to Florida, see the doctor on Monday, worship with them on Sunday, see him on Monday, test Monday afternoon and Tuesday, surgery on Wednesday, and be back on the mission field a little bit over two weeks after that. And they said to me, Ripken, which is the greatest miracle? We can't go to the doctor. We don't have a doctor. There's two million low-caste Hindus for every one doctor. And you telling us that you can go to a Baptist doctor, a Christian doctor, 24 hours a day, seven days a week? We want to know, Ripken, which is the greatest miracle. You said that your praise band, they can sing 24-7. They can be on the radio. You have TV programs. You have all kinds of electronic ways to communicate the faith. And you're saying to us that they are not beaten. They don't go to jail. And you've watched us sit with our knees touching, mouth moving, not daring having any words come out of our mouth. And Ripken, we want to know from you which is the greatest miracle. And I know it's not profit pro proper and it's not cultural, but I cried like a baby. Because I, I'm honest, 
what have I called this, this thing we call church? There's been times in my life, but not now, when I call this common, when I call this normal, when I looked at the church and, and that I was attending and thought, well, you know, if I, if I don't like this one, there's, there's a dozen others that I, I can try out because I didn't understand what it meant to be part of the body. And you don't rip fingers and arms and hearts out of the body. And I wept because of what I'd called this and the way I had treated the bride of Christ. They got her into St. Louis out of the Taliban before I got home to a mission house we had at Georgetown College. And we contacted her and Ruth talked to her and sent her a ticket and brought her to, uh, to be with us for a couple weeks in Georgetown. You ought to have seen her with college students. It was a hoot. She turned them upside down. We ended up having 90 students in our house, and 60 of them have gone overseas for short term or long term. She, she set a fire of God among them. But we got to take her to church for the first time in her life. I don't recommend that with Muslims who are seeking at all, but we took her. Matter of fact, we took her on Saturday night to explain to her, because she'd never, as a Muslim girl, she'd never been in a room outside of her family where men and women, even if they're married, sit together. Let alone men and women sitting next to each other that they're not married to. So we took her and showed her what it was like and told her what she would experience. And the next day they had the worship service and for that church it was a little bit unusual but they started the service with a baptismal service of a, a, a baptismal uh, uh, event of a whole family a father a mother two teenage daughters and a 12 13 year old 12 year old boy and this young muslim background believer sitting between youth and I, ruth and i began to fidget and and sigh and make noises, and I thought, honestly, I, I knew she was having a panic attack uh, because of the environment she's in, so I whispered to her, sister, you, you don't have to stay. Ruth will take you out. I know this is too much to take for one hour, and, and so you can, you can go out, and, and I'll catch up with you later. And she said in a large stage whisper, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. You're telling me that a whole family can be baptized in public and that man's not going to be killed and his wife's not going to be forced to marry a Muslim leader in the mosque, that his daughters are not going to be married off to Muslim men. You're telling me that they're doing this publicly and nobody's going to be beaten, nobody's going to lose their jobs, nobody's going to be killed, have their children taken from them. She said, I think I'm going to stand up and shout. I said, stand up and shout, girl. <laughs> if they kick you out, Ruth will go with you. <laughs> no reason to go by yourself. And, and, and she said, why is everybody just sitting here? Do they not recognize that what's happening would be considered the most overt miracle in the kingdom of God 
in any part of the world that I know? Why are they just sitting here? Why aren't they stand up cheering and clapping and praising God? And indeed, as we approach the Lord's table, in just a moment as our praise team makes its way up here, when you look in the mirror at yourself in the church, what, what, do you, what do you call it? Do you think this is common? Do you think this is normal? Do we actually believe this is what we deserve? Wow. Wow. Windows and mirrors. To see ourselves the way believers in persecution see us and the joy they have for us, for what we have. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing. And for again, for you, for you, a different kind of altar is going to be opened where the Lord's Supper has been prepared. And if you are a follower of Jesus, for you, and you've been baptized, that special place of worship and altar is open for you. And if God has touched your heart this morning and you want all that Jesus has for you, there are folks right over here that would love to open an altar of God more fully for you this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you, Father, that no matter how long I talk or how loud I voice it, I cannot begin to express the joy of seeing what the Holy Spirit is doing among the nations and of the humility that comes when you get to partner with God just to see what he can do. Oh, Lord, Father, help us to see the altar that's been opened for us this morning and help us to know that wherever we speak a word for you this week, we've opened an altar for someone who needs it desperately and needs it for eternity. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, DJ again. Thanks for joining us at the canteen and listening to this week's message. Uh, we hope it was helpful to you and that you're encouraged and challenged as we set out this week to walk the walk of faith together, joining Jesus in going outside. Uh, if you're a part of Christ's community, hey, let's let's lean into this. Let's not let this just be an academic exercise, but let's apply what we've heard today. How can you be applying this truth in your life this week? If you're not part of the Christ community family, we're glad that you joined us, glad that you found us, and we hope that, uh, that this message was helpful to you as well. One encouragement we would give you, if you're not part of a local church, uh, please don't use these resources as a substitute for that. It is a pale imitation of the real thing as we live and
in community with one another. So if you're in the Shelbyville area, we'd love to have you come out and join us. But wherever you are, find a local church, get plugged in and experience Christian community as it was meant to be and continue to use these resources to supplement that journey. But please don't replace it. Thanks for joining us this week. Grab your backpack and I will see you on the trail. Thanks for listening to The Backpack, a production of Christ Community Church. The Backpack is hosted by DJ Williams, Daniel Bright, and Josiah Ward. You can learn more about Christ Community Church at loveshelbyville.com.